Scripture reading this morning is from Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, a great passage, part of our Christmas story. Matthew chapter 1 at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but married her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. Well, today we do continue this short series. It's been just a couple weeks, uh, but we, uh, earlier in the month, we're wrapping our uh, Jacob story into this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. But this is our couple weeks of really a traditional, true Christmas uh, series called Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, after looking at the genealogy last week, just a quick recap, and seeing God's work in history according to his timing. Do you remember those long generations looking at the various women in that genealogy that were listed and how they pointed those women to, to, to God breaking down barriers and bringing his plan of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, even through sinful people like you and me. As we saw those women, many from different backgrounds, not Jewish and having somewhat uh, questionable backgrounds and actions and character even at times in their lives, God still worked through those women, those men in that genealogy. Well, this morning we're going to look at the story through the eyes of Joseph, as Matthew records it that way. Remember last year, you might remember, you might not, that we looked at the story through the eyes of Mary through the Gospel of of Luke. This year, it's through the focus and the eyes of Joseph as Matthew takes us there this morning. So let's look at that today, a little different focus on the life of Joseph. Anton Raphael Mengs in the 18th century painted his version of Joseph's dream. And there are many types of, of paintings like this one, all kinds of them. Uh, always really showing Joseph, portraying him as kind of slumped over on his fist, like he fell asleep like mid-sentence or mid-thinking, but pondering and considering and thinking the predicament he has found himself in. But I just don't want you to see the picture this morning. As you look at that, I also want you to see the frame. A frame is a very important piece of a work of art. It's very important to that painting. 
It gives it, as you look at that picture there, it gives it a perspective. It gives it a boundary. It draws your eyes to the artist's purpose of the painting. It gives it a context, the frame. A, a frame that, that the picture of the, the story lives inside of. Well, counselors and, and psychologists and even theologians use this idea of framing to talk about the way we as humans frame our thoughts, frame the things we think about, or, or how are you thinking about your thinking, the thoughts that are coming into your heart and mind. Because how we frame our experiences shapes them as we go through them and move forward through them in life. Do we frame them positively based on God's truth and reality as God describes it or negatively with our own misjudgments and, and, and fabrications and worries and, and catastrophizing is the word? Well, I know each and every one of us are tempted many times a day probably even to the latter. And while Joseph is framed in picture here, he too was also in the process of, of, of framing his thoughts as the text even tells us now. The text drives us to this idea. Verse 20 says, while he was considering these things, framing them. And the text tells us, the angel says to him, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Kind of giving us an idea of what kind of frame Joseph was living in with this predicament he'd found himself in. He must have been very frightened at the first, at the prospect of having this strange child in this strange way, the strangest way ever, with a woman he wasn't married to. What they, Mary and Joseph, what they needed and what you and I constantly need in life and what was given to Joseph by the angel was a reframing of his thoughts and life around Emmanuel, God with us. This reframing, as we'll see even in the text and the story, gave Joseph immense courage. He went from fear to courage, from passivity and inactivity to bold, courageous action. And I know we want that in life. I know you want that. To feel a little less afraid, a little more bold, a little more courageous, a little more faithful. So today we're going to talk about reframing and reframe our lives around this central reality, these promises of Jesus, Emmanuel, which is God and man with us, with a mission to rescue people from sin. I wish I had four points today because there's four sides to a frame, but I don't. I have three. And that kept it shorter anyway, so you guys are all grateful. Let's look at the first side of the frame today. The angel shows this. The first side of this frame, the angel shows Joseph that the gospel reframes all of life, every bit of life. We've grown so accustomed to hearing the Christmas story, as I even prayed that today, that we forget how radical and shocking the claims are. They had to be, in some ways, because Joseph and Mary were up against a really dire situation. So to see them come out of that and actually act be, uh, obediently, these things must have been absolutely mind-blowing. Well, what, what was it? What were the claims? Look at verse 18 and 19 again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. He's saying this is how it happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, he's kind of setting it up in stages, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, Joseph was engaged to Mary at this time. But it says he considered divorcing her. Well, that's confusing to us. Did you hear that? Engaged? Why do they need to get divorced? But it wasn't confusing to Matthew's original audience because in the the ancient Jewish culture, to be betrothed to somebody, to be engaged to somebody, was as good as being married. They viewed that as being married. So it actually did take an official, uh, uh, official signed divorce to break even an engagement at that time. And betrothal actually was much more, much more binding than our type of engagement as we think today. So to be found pregnant during this period would have required Joseph, if he was to not get into this scandal and try to hide what's happening for Mary's sake, it would have required a divorce. So to be found pregnant during this time would have been so hard for them and would have caused them great fear. How do you think Joseph potentially could have been framing his thoughts at this time. How, do you, how would you? Maybe you found yourself, maybe you've been through a situation like this. Probably not the type with the angel coming saying the baby, but maybe similar to an unmarried couple, wed or unwed with a child. How would you frame your thoughts? Maybe you thought, well, we're going to be delegated to second-class citizens and shunned, and our character and reputations will be shattered, which they would have been. I'm sure my business will suffer, and I'm not even sure Mary's telling the truth. Maybe she has been with another man. This sounds too fantastical to be true. And what will our parents say? And what will God say? Do you see how easy it is to fall into negative framing in something? And those were all realistic questions to ask and ponder. But if he dwelled on those and only thought it through it that way and framed it that way, you could see why he'd end up in this moment totally afraid. Because it all had been put in this negative frame. Another example, just even a side rabbit trail in the Bible. Think of when the 12 spies are sent out to see the land. And go look at the promised land and come back and and report to us what it's like. Can we take it? Can we go in? Can God's people go and take uh, the land for for themselves and for God? And 12 of them come back. And what do 10 of them do? We can't do this. There's no way. The people are huge. We're like grasshoppers. There's no way we can do this. But who are the other two? Joshua and Caleb. They didn't deny the reality of the big people and the difficulty it's going to be, but the frame they put around it was God himself. If God wills this, we can go. Let's go. The 10 had this negative frame. It's a lost cause. We'll be defeated. We'll be destroyed. But Joshua and Caleb framed it with the eyes of God. It's all over the Bible, this idea of framing and how we look at things. We do it all the time in our life. We just don't sometimes stop and think, about our thinking. We just let it happen. We don't ever pause and stop ourselves. We get on these, these runaway train tracks with our thoughts and we don't just go, wait, 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 stop, Jeff. Stop and think about your thinking. It's kind of like that inner monologue that takes place. And so when trials come and disappointments come and real hard suffering comes, we compound it actually 
We don't just suffer. We suffer for our suffering. We add to it the actual negative experience with all our runaway thoughts, that inner monologue. Some great questions to ask yourself to assess the mindset you bring to life. We're going to pause for a minute and think about them. I want you to really think about these questions and assess the way you, not always, but how do you generally begin to start thinking when a trial comes into your life or an unexpected tragedy or even pain and suffering? They're from a book by a man named Robin Phillips, an actually fantastic book called Gratitude in Life's Trenches. These were his questions. Here, let's look at them. Does your brain amplify your negative traits while minimizing the good that God is working for you? In your thoughts, do you show yourself the same loving compassion you show toward a loved one? Do you spend more time thinking about what is wrong in your life than what is good? Does your mind make hardships worse by morbid introspection, dwelling on them just obsessively? Some of you are like, yeah, (laughs) I do that. Do you suffer unnecessarily? Ah, how about this one? Imagining future scenarios that probably are never going to happen. How many of you do that? (laughs) Yeah, good. Okay, good. We got some acknowledgement today. Well, I know this is going to happen. And this chain of events you set up in your mind, like A to Z, and you're just sure it's going to go that way. Are there certain negative scripts about yourself that your brain keeps returning to over and over again? Maybe since you were like eight even. I guess I shouldn't ask you if you, any of these, but how many, how many from the list can you relate to? I've got to think that Joseph and Mary in their mind were tempted to frame their situation with all kinds of doubts, all kinds of negative assumptions uh, with, this, with Mary's unforeseen strange pregnancy. And I can't tell you how important, actually, and, and, and biblicals, we've already kind of seen, but we'll see even more, this idea of reframing something is. We'll see it in a little bit. Uh, Phillips goes on in his book to say this, speaking of the importance of these frames. The frames through which we view our experience do not simply influence the way we think about our lives or your lives. They also affect our quality of life. The difference between a life of joy and a life of self-pity lies in the power of these frames, as does the difference between a life of gratefulness and a life of grumbling. As Elder Piscius the Hagiorite, who that's quite a name, huh? He's an early church father, observed, Everyone interprets events in a way that is consistent with his own thoughts. Everything can be viewed from its good or bad side, determined to view everything that happens from the good side. Now, that's just not saying, ah, just to be oblivious and naive and like, you know, uh, uh, a stoic or just somebody that says, I'm I'm great, I'm great. Uh, Deny, actually, the hardships of life. That's not what we're saying at all today. So please hear that. We're not saying to just naively live in a fairy tale land uh, and not somebody that really sees the suffering of the world. But there is truth to this idea of bringing truth and the love of God that we're going to talk about today and the gospel to bear upon those trials without ignoring them, but putting them in a proper frame. The story's still there in the middle of the frame, right? You know, when you see somebody who has framed their, their life consistently on the truths of the gospel, what happens? One or two things usually. And this is a generalization. 
But generally, as they age, someone who has framed their life consistently on the truths of Scripture and the gospel, they grow in a, in, in a sweetness, a calmness, a quiet resolution and gratitude to live for Jesus come what may. You've known older saints like that. Oh, I wish I could be like them, you said. I wish I was like so-and-so or him or her as you've seen them age. But on the other hand, <laughs> we've all known the other type of person too, who's lived a life of, 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 of framing things with bitterness and grumbling oh, and self-pity. And what happens? That person ends up through a pattern and a lifelong process of that turned more and more inwards and grumbling and shriveling up. And you can even see it in the grumpy man's old face, can't you? We all, you know what I'm talking about. It even affects the contours of our face over a lifetime now. And I said, as that's generally speaking, but there is a pattern there. So what do we need? What do you need to reframe well, it's what the angel did for Joseph. And it's a simple but staggering message of this passage. The baby named Jesus by God would be himself both God and man. You're like, well, that's, yeah, well, okay, that's the Christmas message. We hear it all the time. But that is it. Jesus would be God and man. What does the angel do? He holds out the gospel framework for Joseph to step into. And he gives him this glorious, stable new frame. Let's look again at the reframing done by the angel here. Let's look at verses 20 and 20. 20 and 21 with me. But as he considered these things, there he is framing it. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Two things here. Two things we see here. Two things that the angel communicated to Joseph. Then there become two more sides to our frame. The baby will be both God and man. Both. So let's do a bit more of that, a bit more of that framework this morning. Let's bring these two truths to bear on our lives. Let's look at the second side. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's start by looking at the divinity, the godness of this baby that was born to Joseph and Mary. Emmanuel, God with us. There's a few ways that this angel kind of rocks Joseph's world with this unexpected frame that Jesus is God. But first hear this. Now the Jews of his day, of Joseph's day, we got to put this in context, the Jews of Joseph's day would have been the most unlikely people on all of the planet, on all the planet Earth, to believe that a human could somehow be God. They're the most unlikely. You think of the Greeks and, and some of the Romans, you know, they, they were used to kind of gods that were kind of like humans, but really kind of nasty ones, or they take on a human form, and, but they really weren't both. I mean, they were used to kind of some of those ideas in their own distorted way, but not, not the Jews. The Jews would be the most unlikely people. No images were to be made of God. They couldn't even bring themselves to say his name out loud. So this idea would at first be repugnant to them. But here it is. 
And many Jews were convinced of its truth. Think about that. They were the most unlikely candidates to, to, to put forth this kind of message. Unless it was actually true and they received it. Joseph, frame it this way. Frame it this way, the angel says. I see you are scared of the fact that Mary is pregnant and you're not the biological father, but God is the father and the baby was put there by the Holy Spirit. That's what the angel says to Joseph. The conception is from the Holy Spirit. And on top of that, look at verse 23 with me. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin, Joseph, that's your wife. That's her, Joseph. So any questions or thoughts you were having, put them to rest, Joseph. It was written in Scripture. The prophet said it. The virgin, Joseph, that's your wife, shall bear a son. He shall be called Emmanuel. It means, Joseph, God with us. The life growing inside your soon-to-be wife is a miracle of God and is God. The child is literally God. Apart from a terrifying angelic framing, I don't know how Joseph would come to believe this without this divine revelation, but he did. Look at his courageous response, verses 24 and 25, the end of our passage. When Joseph woke from sleep, and maybe his hand fell off his fist, I don't know, his head hit the table. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, married her, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He called him Jesus. So let's try and frame our lives a bit with this truth. Let's reframe our mind, our direction, and hope in Emmanuel. God with us for a few minutes. Three areas under this second frame I want to bring this truth to bear upon for you, for your life, for my life this morning. Mind, direction, and hope. If God came to earth as a baby and took on human nature and didn't lose his deity so that he was both human and divine, if this really happened in history, this should frame the way we think about everything. Everything in life. It's kind of like our sign outside there in the hallway. The gospel changes everything. Or you could actually rephrase the sign this way for our sake today. The gospel reframes everything. The gospel reframes everything of life. If God came to earth as a baby, J.I. Packer put it this way, God became man. The divine son, a Jew, the Almighty appeared as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. Think about that. The babyhood, he went on, of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. For Joseph, this must have reframed the faith challenge that he was called to to obey Jesus, the one that was going to be born in a few moments. And so for you, what are you facing 
Which one of those questions on that slide described how you look at life? What are you facing and struggling with and compounding and building upon with more and more suffering? Because you're not thinking about your thinking and you're just caught up in it. What is it? Where are you doubting? Where are negative frames taking over your life? Let your mind ponder. Consider these things. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Advent is Jesus, a baby born. And if that is true, it should not only impact our mind, but the direction of our life as well. Mind and heart, mind and body, we're, we're, we're a, a psychosomatic whole. They're connected. You can't actually separate them. So it should impact our direction. He's God with us, so let's take a look at our direction. If God walked on earth and is now present by his spirit, if he actually walked on earth in history, wouldn't that probably turn things a bit upside down in the world? Think about Jesus' ministry for a minute now, as he was on the earth. From the day he was born, he was drawing people to himself. The angels wanted to peer in and see what would happen. The shepherds raced to the manger. The wise men came later on to see. They made that trek to his own to see the toddler king. Everywhere Jesus goes when he's on earth in the Gospels, he stirs things up. He stirs it up. Either he, he draws extreme reactions. There's no kind of middle ground with Jesus. Either they want to crown him or kill him, worship him or curse him. In fact, part of the reason for these extreme reactions is because in everything Jesus does, he's reframing the world for everybody. That's part of the reason for the extreme reactions, because he's reframing it for people all the time. You've heard that it was said like this, but I say this, reframing it. You think this is true, but verily, verily, I say to you, reframing it. You say worship this way, but I say this. He's reframing it. You say this is how we enter the kingdom of heaven, but I say this way, reframing it. You say this is good, but I say this is good. Do you see? This is biblical. To think about our thinking, to frame it with the reality that Jesus brings to bear upon life. He comes and reframes everything, and in the reframing is what brings and stirs up so much of the world and our personal lives too. Because he comes to show us ultimate reality. And the reality is, is apart from Jesus, this world has nothing to offer you but death. And yet everybody who doesn't know Jesus is frantically trying to patchwork together Something that gives them meaning, purpose, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And as beautiful as this world is, and it will be redeemed and transformed, apart from Jesus, this world has nothing to offer you but death. That's why we hide it so much and try to make it as shiny as possible. That's because that's reality. And nobody wanted to see that as Jesus came to earth. That life could only be found in him? A, a, a human who is God? Come on, God, you could do better than this, right? <laughs> he looks like one of us. He stinks like one of us. 
So as to your direction, if you've come to Jesus Christ, and we do daily in faith and repentance, if you already have initially, it's like coming to a fork in the road. If he's come to Jesus and he is God on earth, it's a fork in the road. And if the claims are true, here's what that means. You have to center your entire life around him if he is who he says he is. In fact, he should frame your entire life and be the center of the picture too. Or as one commentator put it, I love the image this week of a person playing billiards. If Jesus was God on earth, this commentary wanted to describe, he's like a billiard cue ball that breaks up all the balls on the table. What do I mean by that? He sets the pattern of your life. He sets the directions you will go. The pathways and what is good and what is valuable and where you should walk and where you should go. By his appearance, he's like this cue ball coming and busting everything up on earth and setting the whole thing in new directions, including all his followers' lives. No one stays static if they've truly come to Jesus. No one stays stationary when confronted with God on earth. It didn't happen in his time. And if the Spirit is here, it won't be that way today either. If you say you follow Jesus and believe that he was God on earth, has your life become centered on him? So we talk in that language a lot here at church of Christ-centered, of gospel-centered, because he did come to earth. Does he direct your life? Does he frame it? Is he the first place you tend to go, tend to go, when a challenge comes? Do you seek the Spirit's counsel in word and prayer? Does he frame your life? Or do you feel like, yeah, I, okay, I, I'll set the course, and Jesus is a nice little addition, like a nice app to your life. He's God with us, the angel said to Joseph. See, Joseph wakes up from the dream. And now his life is centered on this baby who is God coming into the world. And he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Scripture said he took his wife. He knew her not till she'd given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. He reframed from that moment his life. He went forward in obedience and did exactly what the angel said. So let's look at the reframing for us now of our hope. Mind, direction of your life, and now hope. This is our hope. This is the reason we gather. That God did come down in the form of a true baby. And the truth of this means then that every bit of evil will be done away with. And someday all suffering will end. I know it doesn't feel like that. Even right now, it doesn't feel like that. But all suffering will end. Let's frame God this way. Let's frame him this way. Here's who he is as he came down and why he had to come down. On the one hand, he's so infinitely holy that he cannot just overlook all the suffering and the evil and sin and say, eh, oh well, I made that world, it's screwed up now, and just shrug it off and say, don't worry about it. He's so holy he can't do that. No, he has to deal with sin. That's him being 
just, as Romans says. But he's also so loving, as we heard even in our, in our Advent reading today, he's so loving that he desires to still have a relationship with his people in this broken world. And so what does he do? He comes down to earth, and what does verse 21 say? He will be called Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He comes down to us. So holy he has to deal with it, so loving that he will, so he comes to us. He comes to save us. That means everything can be framed with some kind of hope. Jesus came to earth. Why? The angel said it. To save people from their sins. He's shown up on the scene. And the kingdom is beginning to set things right now. It's not finished. It's not even close to finished. But it's happening. And that means that there it can be at least even a shred of hope in all things because he came to earth and did what he did. Because he's God with us to save people from sins, which brings us to our third frame. How did he do it? Well, he had to be human. Let's look at Jesus saves people from sin. The fact that he saved us as a human. So we've talked about the divine, that he is God, but let's not forget the real reality of his humanity. Jesus saves people from sin. He's human. The virgin will give birth to a real live son. A real boy. Was that was it Pinocchio? He wanted to be the real boy, but he was a, a puppet. I just want to be a real boy. No, this was a real boy. Jesus is a real boy. He is one of us. Not a figment of imagination not partially human, not a trick performed by God. He is one of us, like this, real flesh and blood. So what difference does that make? Okay, so what? Okay, maybe it's true, but what difference does that make, Jeff, to framing my life? What difference did it make to Joseph and Mary? Well, it means, Joseph, you, you better get ready to be a real daddy <laughs> and help Mary and step up to the plate and and marry her so as his earthly father, you can raise him, Joseph. But it means they could smell him and hold him and kiss him and hear him and speak to him. There's some incredible things that reframes for us in our life. So let's look. Let's reframe these three things under his humanity. Our service, our suffering, and our courage. Those we're going to put under his humanity. So let's start with service. For God to become human, the scripture says, as he did that, in no way did he lose his, his godness, his divinity. But scripture does speak in a way of him emptying himself, of laying aside some of his glory. Philippians says he laid aside his glory. He gave up some of his divine prerogative, Talk about having to reframe your life. Think about what Jesus did as he became an actual human. Think about reframing how he interacted with creation and the world. Anytime you saw God in the Old Testament, what happened to you? Without some kind of shield, you're dead. And now we can look at Jesus. Talk about a reframing. We can look at God in human form. He became vulnerable, it means, by laying aside his glory. He became 
ordinary as he became human. Think about the vulnerability. The one who formed Mary's womb lets himself be placed inside the womb he formed. That's vulnerable. He entered into Mary's womb as the smallest of cells. I, 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 you can't, I don't even really, it's hard to comprehend. Yet these are the truths Scripture teaches. That the Son of God becomes some cells inside a womb. Vulnerable, ordinary. He lived a life of poverty. No place to call home. Isaiah says he was ugly. <laughs> Isaiah says he was ugly. I mean, let's say we get to heaven. Let's say we get to heaven. And Jesus looks like whatever to you looks like an ugly man. Because <laughs> it'd probably be different for each of us. I mean, well, think about that. You get to heaven and he, you're like, Isaiah says he's ugly. He's totally different from what any of us would say our Western standards of beauty are. Our heroes are beautiful, you know? Brad Pitt, Ben Affleck, Paul Newman, Cary Grant, Robert Redford, not Jesus. All of them not Jesus. Reframe your life around the fact that Jesus was a suffering, ugly servant. It means we shouldn't be enamored with power if this is the reality. We shouldn't be enamored with might. We shouldn't be enamored with glamour. We shouldn't be enamored with glitz and just the fantastic looking. It means we shouldn't be repelled by people's ugliness. It means we shouldn't be repelled by their weakness of appearance or sin even, but drawn to love them because Jesus was really human like that. Common, ordinary, ugly. Frame your life around service as Jesus did. He became human. He came to us so we can go to the least. The weak, the poor, the outcast, the ugly, those are our people. Why? That's who Jesus was. For no other reason. That's who Jesus chose to come as. The poor, the outcast, the ugly, the lonely even, you could say. Choose to frame your life in service. Well, how about suffering? Let's look at suffering. Well, Hebrews says, since we are flesh and blood creatures, and he came to redeem flesh and blood creatures, he became one of us. It says this in Hebrews 2. You see it on the screen. Therefore, because we are that, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, merciful excuse me, and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's payment, for the sins of the people for... Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The fact that Jesus had a real body with a real heart that still probably pumps real blood. I think we're going to have real bodies someday. He's the first with the new body. 
and a brain and a central nervous system, all of that means that Jesus too could feel pain. Real pain, not imaginary. When he was cut, he bled. When he was pinched, he felt it. Real. It means that God suffered because he became a real human and limited himself to that body, and he won the victory through suffering, through the breaking of that real body and the shedding of blood. So, so, so all of your suffering now, when you frame your life with negative thoughts, it looks like this. Nobody knows what I'm feeling. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Yes, Jesus does. He's a real human. Uh, no one will ever see me. No one will ever know what I've been through. The true frame is, yes, Jesus does. He was a real human. You know, this situation's only going to get worse. It's never going to get better. Uh, she's going to do this, or uh, he's going to do that, and probably say that, and then they'll probably never speak to me again. Not necessarily. If he became a real human to defeat sin and death, you can trust Jesus, in other words, with your suffering because he's got street credibility. <laughs> he became a human. He put himself on the line and took on a body like us. That's why you can trust Jesus with your suffering because he's been through it. You know that. You've been through something hard before and somebody comes to you and says, tries to sympathize with you. If they've never been through anything like your situation, and they say, oh, I get it, I know, I know. You're grateful, right? You're glad. You still share with them. But ah, if somebody comes along who's been through the exact same thing, cancer, loss of a spouse, um, some terrible health thing, and they say, yeah, I get it. You look at them and go, yeah, you do, don't you? You do get it. Guess what? Jesus gets it. And he couldn't have gotten it unless he took on a body. He gets it. He's got that street credibility. He walked the streets as a real human. Reframe your life with that. Frame your suffering with Jesus' humanity. But what about courage? That's our last one. Service, suffering, and courage. Now, remember, as we're looking at Jesus' humanity, we looked at his divinity. Now we're looking at his humanity, these two truths that the angel reframed Joseph's life with, the name is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. And Jesus could have come and just kind of popped in, maybe in adult form even, stayed for a few weeks, taught some good stuff, and kind of whew, vanished, disappeared. No, but what did he do? God with us. His plan was to get close to people, to mingle with them, to mix with them, to live with his disciples, eat with them, sleep next to them, snore next to them maybe even, swim with them in the sea, walk with them, talk with them, and then die for them. The angel said, Joseph, do not fear. His name will be Jesus. Real boy with real name, which means God saves. He framed it for Joseph. 
He framed it for Joseph. You see another framed nativity scene. There's a million of them. You hold him, Joseph, real human. You'll smell his skin, Joseph. You'll rub his head. Mary, you'll burp him. As a human, he becomes relatable, near us and like us and with us, as the angel said. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's end with a thought experiment. And it comes from uh, Robin Phillips' book that I already quoted, and I've changed it a bit for our own context, but imagine this frame for a moment around your life. Imagine your life framed this way. Imagine living in a world where every person, every other single human being, has his or her consciousness, mind, thoughts, continually focused on loving just you. Every human in the world now, their consciousness was focused on just loving you. Okay, so even more than that, imagine not only that they love you, but you're living in a world where every single person is continually arranging things in your life for your good. Every human on this planet now is centered around you to do that for you. So think about that for a minute. And once that image is fixed in your mind, ask yourself this question. If you lived in a world like that, how much would you need to fear or worry or experience anxiety? If every single person on the planet was focused on loving you and arranging the world to take care of you, would you ever need to grasp for good things in a harmful way? Now look at this frame on the screen and realize how your life is framed. The reality is you are in a better position than that imaginary world that we just thought of. Better than if all the humans in the world were arranging things for you because you actually have God becoming human, coming to earth to live as Emmanuel, God with us for the purpose of being able to infinitely fix his attention on you and for you so that all that happens in your life, the good and the hard, the joyful and the sorrow, can be redeemed and used for your good and your growth. It's a better world than if every human was focused on you in that way. The God of the earth is, actually. And because he's God, he can do something about it. Not just feel sentimental and go, oh, I wish I could help. No, 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 he can. And not just powerful and not loving. No, he's both. God with us. See, the gospel, it reframes everything in life. Everything. And that's what Christmas is. It's a reframing of your world. So I pray, I pray that it will be this Christmas season. That these two true, twin truths of God and man with us will reframe your life. Not just today, but you begin to form patterns of, of stopping those, the, the negative reframing. It's a no, what do I know? 
Who are you, God? I might not know the reason I'm going through this, but it can't be because you don't love me. God with us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being with us. Thank you for becoming one of us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for resurrecting for us. Reframe a part of each and every one person in this room's life today with these truths. Christ's name, amen.